Acts chapter 18, beginning in verse 18, as we continue on this amazing journey of the Apostle Paul in his second missionary journey that he's going to wrap up in this uh, text of, of Acts 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Centria uh, because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. On arriving, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Father, we thank you for uh, the opportunity, God, for us to come before you and to examine your word, to be to be students of it, Lord, and to be changed by it and to be inspired by it, Lord, to allow the teaching and the instruction that comes from it to transform our lives and to affect the people around us and God to advance your kingdom. And so, Holy Spirit, we yield ourselves to you. I, I know that I don't have it in me to, to deliver your word apart from your help. So give me what I need, the words and the, the heart and the direction and even the, just the attitude God, may it be exactly what you want communicated to these people that you so dearly, dearly love. And so, God, we ask for your blessing on this time of fellowship around your word, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. This particular chapter and its closing verses, these 10 verses, represent the the conclusion of Paul's second missionary journey. He's already been on one, he's finished a second one, and he's about to embark on a third one. So in this short few verses, we have the finishing of the second missionary journey and the beginning of Paul's third. And though these verses are, are fairly brief, it covers territory of four major metropolitan cities and also covers 1,500 miles of traveling that Paul has done. So it just seems like he's just kind of flitting here and there, but we're talking about some serious travel time that Paul puts in uh, because he has such a passion for people, passion for souls, a passion for the kingdom, and a passion to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now we're told that he set sail from Corinth, where he'd been doing ministry, to head towards Syria, and he went with Aquila and Priscilla, and we know about them from last week that they were Jews from Italy, they had been actually exiled from Rome by Claudius's decree that all the Jews had to leave Rome. And in essence, they were political and religious refugees to Corinth. 
And as they were trying to find a living and make a living there, they, they're tent makers, and so they made tents. Paul joined them in that ministry and in that uh, work of service for raising his own support until the church supported him. And, uh, and also, the other things that we know about Priscilla and Aquila from uh, Romans 16 is that they were enormously helpful to Paul in ministry. In fact, Paul says they risked their lives for Paul. We don't know exactly what that means, how that occurred, but when Paul says somebody risked their lives, he's not speaking metaphorically. He's saying that they really put their life on the line for Paul. They're also called in a variety of other places by Paul, uh, servants of God among the Gentiles. I mean, this couple, uh, tent makers, not in full-time ministry, but they poured it out and they lived the life and they made a huge impact wherever they went. And so Paul took them with him from Corinth to Syria However, evidently when they got to this particular city that they arrived in, um, they were tired. And so he went on without them. Uh, but the first thing that we find that he went without was he went without his hair. And, uh, and he left that in Sencrea. And so we have evidence of that in the text in verse 18. Now the question is, what does it mean to, to make a vow and cut off your hair? And why don't we do that anymore? Well, I want to give you a little bit of history uh, to explain uh, what this means, because it comes from Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 through 21. And in that text, uh, the writer tells us that, that there are certain vows that you make, and one of them is called a Nazarite vow. And a Nazarite vow meant that you were, it's actually the word is, is UK, this vow, it's, it means to pray. It's a petition before God that's lifted up to God. And so this vow of the Nazarite meant that you would abstain from any uh, fruit of the vine, no, no alcohol, it would mean that you wouldn't cut your hair and you wouldn't be anywhere around anything dead, an animal or a human body or anything like that. And so during that time, you were submitting yourself to God. It's very much like fasting, except, you know, instead of not eating, you're just not cutting your hair and you're abstaining from, from wine or alcohol and you're lifting up this prayer to God. During that time uh, that you were having this vow, you wouldn't cut your hair. And uh, usually it was for a period of time that was set. Most often it was for about 30 days. And at the end of the vow, when it was completed, and when you had reached the, the date that you'd set before God to lift up this petition before God, when that was completed, then you would go to Jerusalem with your, with your hair in a bag and uh, that you'd cut off, and you would bring it as a, as a fellowship offering to the temple in Jerusalem, and you would burn it with fire. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard, you know, smelled hair burning, but it, it's not like a, a real fragrant aroma, you know, it's, it's just bad, it's just nasty smelling. But, uh, but for God, it was, a, it was a beautiful offering of sacrifice culminating this process of seeking and petitioning God. And one of the questions that I, that I was asking myself that I thought maybe you might ask is, how come we don't do this anymore and, and should we be doing this? And what I want to share with you is the answer is kind of yes and no. Uh, yes. It's okay to do this if your heart is simply that you want to have some sort of a symbolic representation of this heart cry to God. There's absolutely nothing wrong with it. However, my answer to you would be no if you think that you have to keep some sort of an Old Testament tradition in order to get God's attention. The, the whole part of the Nazarite vow was a consecration of your life to God. It was setting yourself apart for God. God doesn't care about hair. That's what I mean, well, he does. He counts them. We know he's, he knows the number of hairs on her head, but he does, he's not so interested in our hair as much as he is our heart. And what God wants consecrated is not our head of hair, but he wants our heart consecrated, which means set apart for him. And so, but if the symbol is meaningful to you, then go ahead and do a Nazarite vow. There's nothing wrong with that. 
Just as long as you understand that it's an Old Testament law that we're completely free from, we don't even have to do it. In fact, even in the Old Testament, you didn't have to do it. It was a, a free will fellowship offering, a way of just expressing praise and thanksgiving and petitions to God. And so having done that, Paul arrived in Ephesus. Uh, by the way, Ephesus is a place in Romans 16:6 6, that we already have discovered that the Holy Spirit forbade Paul to go to. He said, you can't go there. Paul wanted to go to Ephesus, which is in Asia Minor, but the Holy Spirit said no. And so for two years, Paul didn't go there. But Paul got the green light from the Holy Spirit and was allowed to go to Ephesus. The time was right. And uh, so he went to Ephesus, leaving Priscilla and Aquila and going into the synagogue. Now, the, uh, just a couple of fast facts about Ephesus. Ephesus was like the jewel of the Roman Empire. It was one of the most important cities in Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey today. And, of course, during Paul's day, it was, a, it was a very fabulous city. It was an urban center with one of the largest populations in Rome. It had uh, numerous uh, beautiful civic monuments. It boasted of the temple uh, uh, goddess Diana there, which was one of the seven wonders of the world at that time. So this is the city that he enters, and he went into the synagogue, which is Paul's custom, to go first into the synagogue, and this is what Paul would do virtually every time. He would go in on the Sabbath, the readings would be done, there would be worship during that service, and after the readings had been done and completed of the, uh, the Old Testament, the, the law, the prophets, and the, the poetry books, then the floor would be open for anyone that was learned and educated in the scriptures to be able to speak. And remember Paul's background. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. This guy was highly trained, trained by Gamaliel. And so he, he had an elevated status wherever he went. And so he was able to use that platform of the open floor of sharing from the word of God to present how Jesus Christ was the fulfillment of whatever, you know, the reading had just been. It didn't matter what was read because the Bible and the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It's all about preparing the hearts of people for the coming king. And so he was able to knit together a message, it didn't matter what the text was, and to present and to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and how Jesus, the Messiah, was the fulfillment of every Jew's hope, which was for deliverance and for a savior. And so the text tells us in verse 19 that he reasoned with the Jews. Again, we've talked about this repeatedly, but deoligami, in the Greek, it means to dialogue. And again, it's so important that when you're sharing your faith with people, that you understand that one of the most effective ways of communicating your faith is to have a dialogue. That means that both of you are sharing and communicating, that you're taking an interest in others, that you're learning about what they believe. And like Paul, that you're able to adapt the message of Jesus Christ into that conversation by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who will give you the words at that moment. And so Paul wisely reasons rather than, uh, you know, gives a diatribe against the Jews, he reasons with them respectfully and gently and yet with great persuasion. Well, the result in verse 20 is that the, the Jews that were there were, were so blessed that they asked Paul to stay longer. And, you know, he's, you remember Paul, he's six cities in, in Acts so far that he's been chased out of. He's been imprisoned, he's been beaten, he's, been, he's gone through terrible, terrible trials, and every city he's run out of has to leave in the, in the dark of night. I mean, he's just, life is on the line for Paul. And now he finally gets to a place where they say, would you please stay? And he says, I gotta go. 
I mean, you know, it just seems like, make up your mind, Paul. What do you want to do? Why in the world would you leave a place where God seems to be working? Well, if you have a King James Version uh, of the Bible this morning, you may have noticed that there was a little phrase in the text that was skipped in, in the NIV version and most other uh, newer versions. And it says that Paul bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem. Now, in the, most, uh, in the oldest manuscripts of the Greek text, that phrase is not there. And so the newer Bibles uh, don't include that. However, having said that, it's quite possible that the re reason Paul didn't stay when he had this open door was simply because he was on his way to Jerusalem for this feast, this festival, to present his hair in a bag on the altar of God as a sacrifice, a fellowship offering to God. And so he wanted to be in Jerusalem at at on time, at the right time, for this feast in order to present this offering to God. Other possibilities is that the Holy Spirit just said, Paul, you've been here enough. It doesn't matter what people want. And by the way, this is a really good lesson for us is that we need to be people who are directed by the Spirit of God, not by the opinions of people and not by the pressure of other people's expectations. It's so important if you want to lead a Spirit-filled life, you have to know the voice of God and you have to know the purposes of God, the priorities of God, the heart of God as you study His Word so that you are able to stand and know what God's will is and then accomplish that will apart from even the begging and pleading of people around you. When God is leading, you must follow. And so Paul, for his purposes, declines your invitation, but he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Now, this uh, whole concept of, of God's will and timing is such a, an amazing concept to me. And James chapter uh, 4, verses 13 through 15 actually talk about this more extensively. And I'm going to summarize it, but I encourage you to read it on your own, the, the references in your notes. But basically what James says is that, you know, how can you guys make plans as if you're going to live forever? You know, you say, we're going to go into this or that city and we're going to conduct business and we're going to do this or that. And, and he says, how do you know? You don't even know if you're going to be alive tomorrow. What a, a better phrase would be would be to simply say, if it is God's will, we'll do this or that or the other thing. But he says anything that goes beyond this is really kind of arrogant and boasting. And what it's really demonstrating is that we are living independently from the divine guidance of God himself. And so I was thinking about this and I, I thought, you know, who's really in charge of my schedule? Who is really in charge of, of the way I spend my time? Is it me or is it really God? And, and one of the questions I asked myself that it was kind of revealing is that how many times this week did I make a decision based on God's guidance for the way I spent my time? And I want to challenge you with that. How many times this week did you get Guidance from God, I'm not talking about what clothes to wear, whether to, you know, shave your head or not, but I'm talking about, you know, th the important things, how to spend your time and how to balance things and how to treat your wife or your, or your husband or your kids or, or, or if you have decisions in front of you regarding finances or, or relocating or, or just anything, really. It's like, God, are you in this? Do you want me to do this? And, and if you think to yourself back this week that you can only think of maybe one or maybe no decisions that you really honestly brought before the throne of God, then the reality is, is that he probably isn't really the Lord of your life. And this is, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to me. I mean, I was, I was thinking about this, Bob, how, how much control and sovereignty and authority does God really have 
based on how you conducted yourself this last week in your decision-making processes. And so I want to encourage you that we look at the Apostle Paul and, you know, the Spirit of God tells him to go here and he goes. And then the Spirit says, don't go there and he doesn't go. And then later, yeah, go, same place. I couldn't go there before, but now it's okay. And, you know, the Bible tells us that we're to be filled with the Spirit. We are to be led by the Spirit. And we are actually down to the footsteps to be in step with the Spirit of God. This is what the Bible teaches how can I possibly be in step with the Spirit of God if I'm not checking in with him on a regular basis? And I want to share with you that um, one of the most exciting dimensions in my life over the last probably 10 years has been developing a, uh, an ear to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God through fellowship. And I've talked on this before. I'm not going to teach on how to do that again, except to say it just transformed my spiritual life and made every day exciting. I genuinely get up and I'm just like, I'm ramped up for the day because I just, I know God's gonna do some wonderful things. There'll be challenges, of course, but, but I know that God is working and teaching and guiding if I'm simply allowing him to do so. But I have to tell you that even as a pastor early on in ministry, I probably went many times, many days, many sometimes weeks without really, really seriously checking in to find out what God wanted instead of just what I thought would be a good idea. And um, I'm sure that I've missed out on many opportunities that God may have otherwise given me. And I probably found myself in more trouble than I would have otherwise found myself if I had simply listened more carefully and brought things before God. And so Paul was a man who was led by and kept in step with the Holy Spirit. Well, he sails off from Ephesus and uh, goes to Caesarea. Now, just a couple of fast facts on Caesarea. Caesarea is the place where Philip preached the gospel in Acts chapter eight. And uh, you remember the, the, the eunuch and you know, he was sent off and had this trance teleporting thing happen to him and he ended up in a different place. Well, he ends up going to Caesarea. That's where Philip went and he ended up staying there and ministering and preaching the gospel there and planting churches. We also know that this is the same place that Peter went in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius had the vision and Peter had the vision and Cornelius was saying in this vision, this angel of this man was saying, come over to, to uh, Caesarea. And so Peter went and, and, and this Gentile God-fearing man came to Christ with all of his household. And, and since that time, uh, a number of years have passed and there's this exploding work of God in Caesarea. So Paul is coming to a place where there is already an established work. And so verse 22 tells us that he went up as a result and he greeted the church. He greeted the church, aspozamai, which I, I, I just, I love this word because it's, uh, it's got the word spaz in it, and it, uh, aspazomai is how it's really, aspaz. I, I'm thinking, well, how do we get spaz, you know? I, I don't know how it works, but, you know, it's just, it, it's all arms, you know? It's this sense of, of embracing other people warmly and affectionately. And actually, in the New Testament, we have frequent mentions of giving each other a holy kiss and, um, and that's kind of a local tradition here too, but I, I want to encourage the, uh, that you be careful with uh, the holy kiss. This isn't an opportunity for single men to, uh, uh, to get some freebies at church. Uh, so, but there is that, that sense within the body of Christ is that we need to be really, really loving each other and demonstrating it. And that's what Paul does. He lays it out. In fact, this is one of the marks that comes up repeatedly, even from unbelieving historians at the time, the mark of the church was, they said, see how they love each other. That was the thing. It's like they had this incredible agape love for each other. 
And I want to encourage you that that is a mark of you guys as well. And my encouragement to you is excel still more in that arena because Jesus said in John 13, 34, and 35, he says, a new commandment I give you, love each other as I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so the command to us is to, is to have this kind of complete giving ourselves away to each other in, in care, in genuine uh, affection for each other, and support and concern for one another. And so Paul comes to the church. He's never even met him before, and he's throwing his arms around him. And he's just excited to see them, uh, this church that he so longed to come to, but for two years was prohibited. And now he's finally arrived and is able to, uh, to be a blessing to them. But he, he doesn't let any, any uh, moss grow under his feet. Uh, verse 22, he's on his way down and spent time in Antioch. Now, let me, let me talk about Antioch just for a minute. I know I'm, I'm peppering you with information about these various places. But it was located in, in modern-day Turkey, third largest Greco-Roman city in the Roman Empire, had a large Jewish population of converts and, and Greek converts. It was known for being opulent, uh, sophisticated, uh, cultural, uh, lots of commercial and economic importance in that particular area. This is the place where they had the Hippodrome. This is where they had the chariot races. They were really big into sports there. Uh, but they also had shocking levels of immorality and idolatry. This is also the place when Stephen was martyred in Acts chapter 11 that the, churches dis the church dispersed and fled. And one of the cities that's mentioned that they came to was to Caesarea. So it had been evangelized and uh, churches had already been planted there. It's the place where um, Antioch, where the place where, where Paul uh, was actually commissioned for the first missionary journey. It's the place that Paul and Barnabas were sent out from. It's a place that they kept coming back to to report after their missionary journeys were over. And it's a place where Paul and Barnabas, according to chapter 15 of Acts, spent a great deal of time teaching and developing the disciples in the early church. Well, he's on the move again in verse 23. He traveled throughout Galatia and Phrygia. And this verse marks the beginning of the third missionary journey. And it marks a significant transition from church planting to discipling, from evangelism to strengthening the church. In fact, that's what the Bible tells us in, in verse 23, that he traveled from place to place, and what was he doing? He strengthened the church, strengthening the church. This word um, strengthening is mentioned five or six times in the book of, of Acts. It's also mentioned in some of the other epistles that that was what Paul did. Planted the church once it was established. He didn't just leave it and say, okay, I've, I've, I've done it. Now let, leave other people to take care of it. No. Paul had a heart to go back and to strengthen the church. It's a compound word that means to prop up. And the best illustration I've, I've been able to come up with to demonstrate what this kind of a propping up means, it said, have you ever planted a, a little plant uh, in your yard and its, it's, it's root ball is, is obviously not attached to the soil. You pull it out of a little pot and maybe a tomato plant or something of that nature. And, and what do you do? You, well, you've got to put a stake up to hold this kind of gangly thing up because it just can't hold its own weight because it's been uprooted. You've taken it out of its previous existence and put it into a new existence. And by itself, it probably can't survive uh, without being propped up in some way. And so if, you're, if you plant a plant like that, most often you'll, you'll put a stake in the ground and gently tie up that plant until its roots are able to develop to sustain itself, you will tie it up to something that's established. 
And in essence, what Paul is saying is that he went back to Galatia and Phrygia and he told the churches, tie up to me. Tie up to me. I'm going to stay with you for a while. Tie up to me. And, and here's the beautiful picture of discipleship and mentoring is that Paul allowed people to come that close to his life, being a, a firm, strong, established believer, working with brand new Christians who probably didn't know a lot of things about God. And he says, tie up to me. Don't, he wasn't like, you know, me speaking on Sunday morning where I'm just, you know, speaks to a crowd of people and then leaves and there's no connection all week. No, he says, I want you to come close. Come, come right over here. Tie up to me. Let's spend time together. I'm going to mentor you. I'm going to pour myself into you. I'm going to teach and instruct you. I'm going to help you sink your roots deep in the word of God and in prayer and an understanding of the spiritual life so that when I leave, I, we can untie and you'll be established. And, and if you take it a next step, 2 Timothy 2.2 says, Paul to Timothy, the things you've heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So the process continues. So Paul says, tie up to me. And then the people that tied up to him after they're established, let people tie up to you. And on the process goes. It's called discipleship. It's the great commission of the church. And here's the thing I wanna, I wanna bring home to our hearts is who's tied up to you? Who have you allowed that close into your life to be able to see how to conduct themselves in marriage, to be able to see how to raise their children, to know how to handle their finances, to know how to study the Bible, to know how to walk in obedience, to know how to do spiritual warfare, to know how to have a relationship with the Holy Spirit, to know about the kingdom to come and the, and the glorious future that we have in Christ, to know how to share their faith. Who is tied up to you? And the sad truth is, is that for most Christians today, they're just kind of thinking, hey, my roots are good, and I don't know about everybody else, but I just want to, I, I need to get fed today. You know, I, I'm, I'm in here because I want, I want more nourishment. And nothing wrong with being nourished, but here's the challenge of Scripture. Here's the challenge of the true Christian life. Here's the challenge of the Great Commission. Who will you invite to tie up close to your life so that they can know God better and so that you can pass on the heritage and the blessing that, that's been passed on to you. And so Paul wonderfully strengthens the disciples and allows people to become strong as they tie up to his life. Well, there's an interesting word, verse 24, meanwhile. While all this is happening in Paul's life, something else is happening and a new person is being introduced into the text of of the book of Acts, and his name is Apollos. And we find out about him that he was a Jew, a native of Alexandria. Uh, by the way, Alexandria was, a, was an amazing city. Uh, again, uh, uh, had a great impact on Christianity. It's the place where the Septuagint was written. The Septuagint is the Greek version of the Old Testament. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but the Septuagint is a Greek translation of that work. And uh, it's where actually a number of the earliest manuscripts of Christian writings were found. It's also the place that, uh, that Apollos, in a very academic setting, became well-versed in the scriptures in the Old Testament. And so we're told in verse 24 that he was a learned man. It means fluent or eloquent. In fact, a lot of people refer to him as the, as the golden orator of that time period. And so he was a very talented and gifted speaker, very persuasive. Verse 24 at the end says he has a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. I mean, this guy's like the, how did this guy get so together, you know? 
Have you ever wondered that when you read some of these stories? It's like this guy is just, he's just, God has just blessed this man and opened his heart. And I think to myself, he has a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Is there anybody here that feels like you know the Bible well enough now that you just don't really need to learn anymore? I mean, I've been a Christian for like 30 years and a pastor for most of those, and I still just feel like I'm an infant. I, I know the word pretty well. I've been through it so many times and taught it many times, but I still just feel like I'm, I'm just learning. I'm still growing. And yet here, this man has a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. It means powerful or capable or mighty. This guy had a commanding understanding of the word of God. And I thought to myself, God, I want to have, have that kind of an understanding of the Bible. I want to know it like that. I want to be well-versed in the scriptures. I want to grow. And I thought to myself, well, is there a passage in the Bible that actually tells us how to do that? Because I'm assuming, wouldn't you like to grow in your knowledge of God? Yeah? Okay, a few of you, a little bit more. But if you're a real believer, which I'm assuming most of you are, you really do want to know God better. And you would like to know this Bible. And you would like to be able to answer skeptic questions. And you'd like to be able to know eschatology and how things are going to pan out in the order of things. You would like to know uh, certain answers to your questions about prayer and about evangelism and about your marriage and, and about finances and all these things. But the Bible has it all here. Interesting. The book of Ezra gives us a very clear picture of how you and I can become people who are well-versed and well-acquainted, having a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. And it's shared with us in Ezra chapter 7, verses 6 and 10. And you can turn to it if you'd like to, or you can listen. But in Ezra chapter 7, verse 6, Ezra came up from Babylon. He was in exile, came to Bab uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem. He was a teacher, listen, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. So again, we've got, now we've got Apollos who has a thorough knowledge of the scripture and we've got Ezra who is well-versed in the Old Testament. Both of these men powerful in the word of God. How did it happen? It tells us in verse 10. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. And there are three things I just want to point out very rapidly here. If you are serious about growing in your knowledge of the word of God, then the first thing that you have to do is you have to devote yourself to it. You have to devote yourself to studying it. That's not gonna happen if you're reading a little devotional book with one verse in it and a little story uh, and have that be your spiritual existence. I'm not knocking devotions, but I'm just saying that if you really wanna have a thorough knowledge of the word of God and be well-versed in the scriptures, you need to devote yourself to studying it. That means having regular quiet times. Uh, that means memorizing the Bible, uh, you know, portions of it, key verses. It means meditating on it, like Psalm 1 says. The, the man that meditates on it, the woman that meditates on it, will prosper in whatever they do. They'll be like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season. And that's a wonderful picture of the man or woman that devotes themselves to the study of the word of God. But he also says, it's not just the study, but he says, they also observe what they learn. In other words, they put it into practice. So if a person studies it but doesn't put it into practice, they're not really considered well-versed or having a thorough knowledge of the word of God. They have to take in what they've learned and actually live it out. But we're not done yet because lots of people do that and they're still not well-versed in the scripture. Here's the last component because he says that they were teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. 
If, you, if you've ever taught anything, you know the difference between actually just listening to a class and then actually teaching the class. You know what I'm talking about? Actually listening to something or observing it and then actually having to teach someone else to do it, you, it ramps you up to a whole different level of understanding. And here's the challenge, and it's actually in the book of Hebrews, is that the Bible says, he's kind of rebuking the church a bit, actually, but he says you should be teaching. You should be disseminating what you've learned. But as it is, you're, you're still on milk. You're still having to be fed and nourished. You're still, having, you're still taking when you should be giving. And, and this is one of the marks of a, of a maturing believer, is these are the ones that are devoting themselves to studying it, to observing it, and also to teaching it. And I really think that most of us here, unless you, unless you came to Christ last week, in some way should be passing on to others what's been passed on to you. Letting people tie up, loving people, extending yourself, serving, helping, coming alongside, not just thinking about your root system and your plant and your fruit, but also looking around you and, and seeing that God can use your plant, your spiritual life, to actually be a resource of strength for others around you. And that's the kind of life that Paul lived. But, but Apollos had this thorough knowledge of the scriptures and the Bible says that he spoke with great fervor. I mean, this guy was just, this guy was on fire. I mean, he, he wasn't your, your droning, monotonous, uh, boring teacher. This guy was just exciting to listen to because he believed what he was saying and he preached it with a passion. And this word is zeo in the Greek and it means boiling hot. It means like molten metal that's just glowing. You know, you get around, it's just like the heat just comes off. You start sweating when you get around this guy. He's just like, you're either gonna, you're either gonna be inspired by the guy or you're gonna be so convicted and willing to change that you wanna get away from him. Those are the only options with this guy because he's so white hot for the kingdom of God. And actually, there's a command in scripture as we look at the life of Apollos that calls us to the same life. It says in, in, uh, in Romans chapter 12, verse 11, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor. Zeal, white hot, boiling, molten-like, glowing. That's the call of the Christian. That's our call. And here's the truth. We're not all gonna be you know, molten hot constantly. Uh, and today especially is not a good day for that. It's a little warm in here. We're already a little bit hot. But... Uh, but the, the calling that we have is, is not to be looking back at a time 20 years ago and saying, oh, I was, I was on fire then, man. I couldn't get enough church. I couldn't, I couldn't share the Lord enough. I couldn't uh, be around Christians enough. I, I couldn't read the word enough. Yeah, those were the good days, you know? And some of us talk like that. And I wanna encourage you that if you think like that and your life is like that, uh, to allow the Holy Spirit to use this divine appointment of this particular message that you are hearing on this particular day to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you and say, I am done with being lukewarm. I want my fervor back and asking the Holy Spirit to restore that kind of a spiritual vigor in your life. And I wanna give you just a couple of, of hints that will help you reinvigorate that spiritual vitality. The first thing is you've got to get back into the Bible. You've got to read this book and spend time in it every morning. Get up earlier. I don't care what time you go to work, just get up an hour earlier. You can do it. God will help you. Turn the TV off at nine o'clock at night instead of 11 or 12. And, and right there, you just, you just recovered your spiritual vitality, getting into the Bible, journal, uh, you know, meditate on it, pray, worship the Lord. 
So if you develop your relationship with God, that is the first and foremost issue of vitality in your walk with God. The second thing is you have to rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't commend to you enough or exhort you enough to develop a relationship with the Holy Spirit. And part of that is just simply asking him on a daily basis, fill me again. Every day I get up and I just, I, I, I leak away at, at night, I guess, in my spiritual life because in the morning I need him again. It's like, fill me again, you know, do it again every day. Fill me up. I need you. I need your guidance. I'm depending on you. I'm looking to you for every decision. And, and that's going to really ramp up your spiritual life as you are led by his kind, gracious, skillful leadership. The third thing is make sure that in your service, you are serving God and not people. The fastest way to burn out is to serve people. You, you'll never get enough pats on the back. You'll never get enough kudos or strokes. Uh, you'll, never, you'll never be able to handle the disappointments that come in ministry or serving people if you're serving them. You have to serve God. That will help you maintain your vitality so that no matter what the outcome of your service is, it's all to God anyway, and whatever fruit comes from it is bonus. The last thing I want to encourage you in terms of maintaining your spiritual fervor is that you need to keep your eyes on eternity. You need to keep your eyes on eternity. And can we go another day and serve God vigorously? You bet. I can't go 20 years though, but I can go tomorrow. I can go today. I'm good for the week. I think I can do a week but all God is asking me for is a day. And if I know that the king is coming, it just inspires me to live for eternity and it keeps me vital in my walk with God. And so those are just a, a few uh, points that God kind of put on my heart to share with you. But we need to be people who aren't looking back 20 years at some vital time in our life and bemoaning that it's not that way anymore. We need to get back on track. God has not moved. We moved. Let's move back even as uh, we see Apollos speaking with great fervor. Now, the Bible tells us in addition in verse 25 that he taught about Jesus accurately, but he only knew John's baptism, which is an odd phrase to me that, that Dr. Luke would write this. It's, it's like saying that he knows everything about it, but only a little bit of it. He didn't know the whole story, but he knew some. And in essence, in understand, to understand what Apollos was teaching, we need to know what John's baptism was and what John the Baptist taught. What did John teach? John the Baptist taught to the people, he says, you've got to repent. That's the first thing, repent. The second thing is he says, you need to be baptized, signifying your, your end of the allegiance to your own life and your beginning of your allegiance to the new life in Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a complete dynamic change of the lordship of Christ in a person's life. The third thing that John the Baptist preached is that man is the Messiah, and he pointed to Christ. And he says, behold, the Lamb of God who's come to take away the sins of the world. That's what John preached. That's what John knew. However, John did not know about the death and resurrection of Jesus. He didn't know about the glorious triumph. He didn't know about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. These are things that were vague and difficult to discern because it was so enormously out of the box for what any Jewish person could even fathom that God would do in sending his own son to the cross that we might find life. But he had a shadow. It was, it, was, it was difficult to see, but he was able to communicate so much of the message. Repentance, baptism, that is the Messiah. And so in essence, what Apollos was teaching was baptism, repentance, and that Jesus was the Messiah. In other words, he had the truth, but it wasn't the whole truth. 
And we're gonna be studying in a couple of weeks the next chapter in verse 19, chapter 19, verse three through seven, similar people in Ephesus that Paul meets. And Paul has this interesting conversation and dialogue with him. He says, what baptism did you guys receive? And he, he says, they said, we received John's baptism. And, and, and Paul said, well, you need to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which seems to be different. And I don't wanna talk about that right now because we're gonna unpack that in a couple of weeks. However, this this was a common problem in Asia Minor at the time because Jesus and his message had not been fully preached. And so we find that Apollos didn't know uh, the completion of this finished work of Christ, though he was uh, teaching and preaching boldly in the synagogue, as as the scripture tells us. And interestingly, as he's preaching one day, Aquila and Priscilla hear him speak. And, you know, I'm sure that they were just like, wow, this guy is just on fire. And he's pointing to all the Old Testament prophecies about this coming Messiah, that the Messiah has come, that they need to, be, uh, they need to repent of their sins, they need to be baptized, and they're waiting for the rest of the resurrection story, and he doesn't get to it because he doesn't know it. He doesn't know the full story. And so Aquila and Priscilla befriended Apollos, and they invited him over for dinner. I love these guys. I just think, well, how graceful, how kind, how magnanimous and, and sensitive to the, this great man, Apollos, who is so educated, they, they invite him over. Here, here's a few principles I just want to lay out that I've learned from this text that I thought about. Number one, I'm completely blown away by Aquila and Priscilla and the tact with which they handled Apollos' gaps in his understanding of, of, uh, of Jesus Christ. They could have very easily, right up in the middle of the synagogue, whoa, whoa, hang on, hang on, hang on. Are you closing in prayer? You know, you haven't done the rest of the story. Let me, let me, sh- Apollos, uh, you were educated in Alexandria, haven't you heard these things? No, they didn't do that. They didn't uh, talk behind, their, behind Apollos's back and go home and have a little gripe session about, well, that guy has a lot of zeal, but boy, he's gonna stumble a lot of people because he doesn't have the whole message I mean, these people didn't do any of that. What they did is they invited this man over to their house and they gently and kindly and I believe respectfully instructed this man who was so educated in a fuller understanding and a more adequate, complete understanding of the work of Jesus Christ. Now, here's here's the thing. Remember, Apollos is a very highly educated man. He's persuasive. He's well-versed in the scripture. He has a thorough knowledge of the Bible, far better and and more knowledgeable than I'm I'm assuming Aquila and Priscilla had. This guy was a highly trained orator. And can you imagine how difficult it is to correct someone else's doctrine when you're just like a tent maker? Do you understand what that's like? It took a lot of courage for Priscilla and Aquila to handle it and a lot of grace for them to handle it in such a way that they weren't humiliating him publicly. They were giving Apollos the best possible opportunity to respond in a positive way by setting the right environment. And I want to encourage you that if you're ever dealing with a problem that you need to address with another person, it takes guts, it takes courage to love people enough to be restorative and to help them have a fuller understanding. And you want to arrange that meeting in such a way that the best possible outcome can occur. In other words, don't have this meeting in front of people. Don't yell at your wife or your kids publicly. You know, don't don't reprimand your employees in front of customers. I mean, these things are just kind of common sense, but but it happens a lot. And, And we can't do that. We need to be private in these matters. 
like Aquila and Priscilla were, and it led to a great outcome. Now, I'm, I'm impressed with them, but I'm equally impressed with Apollos because here's this very educated man, and, and he's thinking to himself, who he could have said, who are these bumpkins, you know, these refugees from Rome, these tent makers telling me I don't have a full understanding. I'll show them. I can, I'll, 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 we'll have a, we'll have a, a book quoting contest between us. And I, I've got, yeah, I probably had most of the Old Testament memorized. And we'll just see who knows the Bible better. You know, he could have been like that. He could have been kind of like us. You know, when somebody confronts us with something, it's like, oh, no, no, uh, who are they? And, you know, that's inappropriate for them. I mean, who are, after all, look at their life. I mean, my gosh, look at the mess their life is. You know, and you, you do this whole process of trying to defend yourself. But Apollos was not a man like that. Here was a man who was receiving correction from, in essence, people who were his junior in so many ways spiritually, and yet he responded so gracefully and so wonderfully, and it actually launches him into his first missions trip. It's just totally exciting. This, this little meeting with Aquila and Priscilla changed the ministry of Apollos. This one little dinner gathering was the transformation of his life and led to a tremendous amount of fruit. <clears throat> you know, the Bible says that in Proverbs 9.9 that if you instruct a wise man, he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man and he will add to his learning. And that's exactly what happened with Apollos. He added to his learning by being teachable. <clears throat> I want to encourage you that you have people sitting right around you who, who, who are the greatest resource outside of God and, and the word of God and the spirit of God, the greatest resource for your spiritual development is probably sitting just a few feet away from you and maybe even closer. Those people around you, they, they see things that you don't see about yourself, your weaknesses and your flaws and your foibles, the hidden things that you just, you've not connected the dots. You've heard people say similar things like when you were in junior high and high school and then at your workplace later and they said this about you and that about you, but you've just defended and defended and defended. But you've got a person next to you who's also said the same thing. And you just keep putting your guard up and putting your guard up. L let me tell you that if you will allow God to speak through that person who knows you so well and simply lay it all on the line and say, I want Christ above all. I want Christ's likeness more than life itself. And I am willing to hear anything and examine anything and pray through anything that you present to me so that I can be shaped into the image of Jesus Christ. That's the heart of God. And yet, I know myself, and you're probably not that different, it's very hard to receive criticism and to be rebuked and corrected. But listen to what the Bible says about those that refuse correction. Proverbs 12.1, they are stupid. Well, that kind of gets to the point. <laughs> Proverbs 10.17, they lead others astray. Proverbs 13.18, they come to poverty and shame. Proverbs 5, 12 through 14, they come to the brink of utter ruin in the midst of the assembly. Isn't that amazing? Don't you see people in, in your life that if you, you just think to yourself, if they could just get this, their life would change. It would be so much better. Marriages would be better. Their, their family life would be better. Their work environment would be better. Their influence in the community would be more powerful. But they've got these little things that they just keep doing over and over, character flaws, traits, habits, whatever. And the, the really sad thing is, is that because of a fear of man and an unwillingness to really love people, no one goes to that person and simply shares with them, hey, come on over for dinner. And then prays for an opportunity in love to share these things that you observe. 
Now, if you want to really learn how to, how to get this thing rolling in your life right away, and I know all of you are very eager to be criticized and, and, to, be, uh, uh, and to hear some, some commentary on your life today, but seriously, if you really want to grow, this is what you do. This will fast track your whole spiritual life. You will, you will make more advancement in this next week than you have in five years if you'll do what I'm simply going to tell you right now. Go to the people who know you well and say, I'm on a journey. I'm on a quest to become more like Christ. And I've got a long way to go. And I know that I have things in my life that you probably have observed. You've known me for years. Would you share with me what you think and observe in my life is keeping me from being as fruitful and as productive and as Christ-like as the Lord wants me to be? And then be ready to listen, of course, you know. But if you do that with your wife and your kids and some key people in your life, and you're seriously teachable like Apollos was, it's going to launch you into new, vibrant ministry that you never even thought possible. I would suggest to you that an unteachable heart brings almost your spiritual life to a standstill because you'll just never get past those lessons until you finally come to grips that you, like me, like all of us here, have these hidden areas, these weaknesses that we've excused for years, and God is calling us to change for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of his pleasure. And so Apollos was a man like this. And as I mentioned, verse 27, as soon as all this happens, you know, we don't have a time frame here, but it's probably maybe weeks or months at the most. But after this happens, Apollos gets so fired up about the gospel because he's now he's got the complete version of it that he catches the missionary spirit and he wants to go to Achaia and he goes to encourage, uh, uh, or he's encouraged by the brothers to go. They wrote a letter of recommendation for him. And in verse 27, it says that he arrived and was a great help to those who believed. Sumbalo. Sumbalo is a compound word. It means with and to throw. And so have you ever heard of casting your lot with someone? That, that's kind of where this phrase comes from. You cast lots with someone and you kind of join their effort. And Sumbalo means that Paul came along and he, um, Apollos came along and he joined the efforts of what was happening in Achaia. Probably the best way I can illustrate it here on the islands is a canoe paddling team. You know, Apollos was the kind of guy that didn't, you know, get to the shore and say, you know what, um, you know, I know I'm new and everything, but that, your uniforms are really, you got to do something. I'm not, I can't paddle on a team with, with silly looking uniforms like that. That's just out. I'm not doing that. And your paddles, they're not shaped properly. I can't do that. And your team is all messed up. You know what? We have to start from scratch. I need to be in charge. Well, he doesn't do that. It says that Sumbalo, he came and cast his effort in with them and basically got in the boat and started pulling with them and pulling for them. And that's what is so helpful in church. And I want to I commend you as a fellowship. You are such an, this is such an easy church to pastor. I, I don't want very many people to know about it because I know somebody's going to try to take my job. But you are, the, you are the church that more than any place I've ever been gets in and just sumbalo. We are sumbaloing together. I, I know that's not a real word, but uh, I'm making it up as I go. But we are sumbaloing together in this great work that God has called us to, and we are pulling in the same direction, not fighting amongst ourselves, not bickering, not, not having factions, but you are a church that just so graciously and wonderfully pulls in the same direction. And that was what Apollos was like wherever he went. He came, jumped in, pulled with and for the people that he was around. And the church was blown away because he was able to do some things that they couldn't do. Verse 28, he vigorously debated and refuted the Jews in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. It means to irrefutably demonstrate 
that Jesus Christ was the anointed, promised Messiah of the Old Testament. So we find that these wonderful people, I mean, there's so many lessons just kind of condensed in this very brief section of Scripture. And I want to I conclude by asking some questions of you that will hopefully help you reflect on the text and, and, and do what Ezra did, which is not just to, to be aware of it and study it, but actually to observe it and possibly, God willing, to pass on some of the truths you've heard today to other people. The first question I want to ask is that it's possible that even though we're talking about Aquila and Priscilla and, and Apollos and Paul, it's possible that there may be someone here today that's never received Christ. Maybe you're like Apollos where you have a partial understanding of the gospel, but you've never really yielded your life to God. You've never said, I want Jesus Christ in my life. I want to surrender myself completely. I want to, to repent of my sin, which means I, I don't want to go there again. I'm willing to admit I've done the wrong things. And I want a relationship with God. I want to develop this dynamic, wonderful experience of knowing God and living for God and allowing God to live through me. And if that's, if that's your heart, it's as simple as admitting your need and reconciling with God, just like you would a person, you know, I've done the wrong thing, would you please forgive me? And then asking God to be in charge of your life and, and recognizing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that your, the penalty for what you should pay was paid by Christ if you'll simply receive the gift. And that can happen today. For the rest of us, I, I want to ask some questions. Who is really in charge of your life? Who's in charge of your time? Who's in charge of your priorities? The way you can answer truthfully that question is, how many very clear directives did you receive from God this week? And you'll have an idea of how directed your life is by God. I want to ask you, are you growing in spiritual strength? Are you really eager to know God and to be well-versed in the scriptures? If you are, you need to devote yourselves to the, to the study of the Bible, to observing it, and to giving it away. Some of you need to step up and begin teaching in some format, some venue, at your home. At the very least, disciple your own family. But God has equipped many of you uh, to teach, and he's calling you to become involved at some level, passing on what you've received. Another question I want to ask is, have you allowed someone to come close enough to your life to tie up to be strengthened by you in their spiritual life. If you haven't, I want to encourage you to pray that God would open your eyes because there are probably a dozen people in your life that would be eager to have that happen if you would allow it to, to occur. And that the scary part, of course, is that you're accountable. You know, you get people that close. That's one of the reasons why nobody wants to have anybody tie up is like, I don't want to be accountable. But God is calling us to be accountable and he's saying, step up. And I'm encouraging you, step up and let somebody else tie on. The last thing I want to encourage you is that one of the most important paths for our development as a body of Christ is the willingness to correct and rebuke when necessary, as 2 Timothy 3.16 says, that we need to not just be teaching, but rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. Why? So that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In other words, what he's saying is that we can't really be thoroughly prepared for the works that God has called us to unless we are willing to rebuke and correct in kindness and in love and all humility, and also be rebuked and corrected with a, a humbleness and a yieldedness and a responsiveness that makes people feel like, man, it was scary to bring this to you, but I can't believe how responsive you are. And to see your life like Apollos just completely rocket off 
and take off in terms of usefulness to the master because you have been a teachable man or woman. And so I want to encourage you, take some steps this week, put it into practice and pass it on and live for the king. King is coming and his reward is with him and you will not be disappointed. Live for him this week. Father, we thank you for this time. We pray that you would bless our fellowship now as we pray with each other and love each other and, and uh, give ourselves away to each other and allow people to tie up to us and, and to, to nurture each other and to be a blessing, God, and to cast in our lot with one another for the purposes of your kingdom. Magnify your great name and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.